Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifchdecker, a medieval historian, and today we have something a little bit different. I'm joined by fellow medievalists Lucy Barnhouse and Winston Black, who are the editors of the new book Beyond Cadfael, Medieval Medicine and Medical Medievalism, and they'll be joining me today for a wide-ranging discussion of how modern popular culture represents medieval medicine. So, Lucy, Winston, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's great to be on your show. Yeah, thank you both for joining me. I'm really happy to have you. So uh, why don't you each introduce yourselves to the listeners? Uh, just tell them a little bit about who you are. Sure. I am Lucy. I teach medical and medieval history as an assistant professor at Arkansas State University. I also contribute to the Footnoting History podcast, and I have been on here before to talk about my disproportionate love for Walter Scott's Ivanhoe and its 1990s <laughs> adaptation, which seems pretty on brand for me. Yeah. <laughs> Winston, you are the you are a first timer on this yes, podcast. First, first time on here. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Uh, yeah, I'm Winston Black. I am also yeah, a medieval historian, a uh, professor of history and religious studies at St. Francis Xavier University in Nova Scotia, uh, where I have the overblown title of Gatto Chair of Christian Studies. But that really means I could teach all the medieval medicine I want as long as there's a, a good dash of religion in there too, which isn't yeah. hard when you're doing the Middle Ages. Yeah. It's never hard to have a good dash of religion thrown in. Uh, I actually just... Uh, <laughs> Just the other day, I was kind of very proud. I uh, did this, uh, like, poll everywhere has that, like, word cloud thing that you can do. And I had mm -hmm. at the beginning of the semester, like, what do you think about when you think about the Middle Ages? And I did it at the beginning and then at the end of the semester. Religion wasn't there at all in at the beginning of the semester. And it was, like, the the toppers, like, second highest uh, word at the end of the semester. Right. They learned something. I know. It was actually quite nice. I was like, oh, you yeah. did learn something. Yeah, I was going to say it's kind of surprising that it wasn't there at the beginning, but maybe it was, you know, secretly under the cloak of, you know, superstition or Catholic tyranny or those other <laughs> assumptions. I think, come in, right? yeah, we might have had, they might have had superstition, but there was like a lot of like castles and knights. Uh, and I think somebody put guillotine, uh, which was uh, pretty entertaining. <laughs> feel your listeners should know that I just cackled immoderately while muted. <laughs> <Just that. laughs> As that indicates, right, uh, students have, and non-medievalists in general, have uh, wild sets of uh, ideas about the Middle Ages, which seems relevant, I'm sure, to uh, what we're going to be talking about today. So why don't you start by uh, telling us all a little bit about the book? So what is this project and uh, why should we all definitely read it immediately? Sure. Yeah, yeah. I'll jump in here. Just uh, talk about the structure of the book. Uh, it's a collection of essays uh, by scholars of medieval history in general, especially medieval medicine, specialists in medievalism, where we all in very different ways look at how medieval medicine is represented today. It could be in video games, 
in postage stamps, in uh, mm -hmm. still in medical practices in certain cultures. So uh, we wanted a big uh, variety of ways of approaching what uh, we coined the term, I think, uh, medical medievalism. Mm -hmm. I do think that's ours. I think we get to claim that. Um, uh, as Winston has indicated, uh, the collection represents a wide variety of approaches and subfields. Um, and it also represents a wide diversity of subjects. And we intentionally crafted it that way. Mm -hmm. to highlight continuities and conversations between the medieval and the modern, as Winston mentioned, right, to kind of overcome the idea that the medieval and the modern are rigorously separate things, mm -hmm. and also to showcase the vibrancy of the global Middle Ages. So the collection takes in everything from mommy blogs to Quranic healing to Game of Thrones. So I think the ultimate answer to why you should all read it is that you'll learn something. Uh, whatever mm -hmm. your previous uh, knowledge set about the Middle Ages or medicine is, I think the, the diversity of the essays means that it's designed so that it's a kind of something for everyone collection. Yeah, and I, I have not had the chance to read it yet, unfortunately, but I'm really excited to read it soon and uh, to hopefully have things to assign to my students. And shout out, the uh, the medievalist from whom I got my cat has uh, contributed an essay. This is true. We are very happy to have Courtney's essay about how leprosy is imagined in the book. Um, and her essay also brings in pop music, uh, which is unusual, but also illustrates how medievalism, right, in a mm -hmm. wide range of contexts right says a lot about how the medieval is imagined right yeah. um whether that includes lots of lepers or guillotines um or right etc mm -hmm. etc et <laughs> yeah uh one of the students actually post word cloud and uh comparing the one from the beginning of the semester to the end of semesters said the first one uh kind of seemed like what you would come up with if you watched monty python and the holy grail um, which I, which I guess doesn't actually have lepers, but the, but there are lepers in uh, Life of Brian. So you know, really, it's kind of like the Monty Python medieval uh, or pre Monty Python pre modern uh, versus uh, you know Universe. the realities. Yeah, I, mean, I do love Monty Python oh, so much, yeah. but yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, yes. Sorry, Winston, did you want to add? I, I disagree. Uh, Monty Python, I think, is actually. I like to tell my students it's a lot more accurate than many other. Oh yeah medieval or pre-modern movies out there i want to hear more about this uh medievalist's cat though but i, I think that's something yeah. for another day <laughs> i i will i will actually just briefly share the story because i i think i'm very happy for like the audience of this podcast to know this story yeah. if they don't already which is that uh courtney and i connected on twitter like through medieval things and uh courtney i don't know if she still does now that she's relocated but uh when she was in mississippi she uh fostered cats and was uh, posting about uh, and like posted videos of this uh, incredibly adorable and charming kitten right when I was just thinking about getting a new cat after uh, my cat Carmen had passed away about maybe six months before at that stage. Yeah, and so like the 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 timing was just uh, really perfect. And I drove down to Mississippi and uh, got, got Dolce from Courtney. 
That's great. Yeah. <laughs> The sharing cats. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she is, um, she's a great cat and she and my dog get along very well and it's all very charming. Good. Good. Mm. Yeah. Well, one other thing I wanted to add here about uh, the volume is I think that readers who come to it might actually learn even more about modern pop culture than about mm -hmm. the middle ages. Our, our goal is not necessarily to just correct people or to show what medieval <laughs> medicine is like but was really like as far as we know that but to explore how do we want to see the mm -hmm. past today how do we even those who really understand the medieval past how do we reinvent it reappropriate it in different media and why we might not actually want to be historically accurate when we're uh -huh. creating uh, mm -hmm. uh, some sort of uh, video game or comic book or pop song or whatever the case might be. Mm -hmm. So uh, just understanding the ism, the medieval ism of mm -hmm. appropriating the Middle Ages today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's something that really often comes up on this podcast that, you know, the examples of medievalism we see in, in films and in books and memes that all of this really in a lot of ways says much more about the uh, the modern than it does about the medieval. Always. And yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I finished uh, my class this term on the medieval church uh, by showing a clip from the seventh seal. And, and I, I, I like it because I think it actually is a pretty good, accurate re representation of a plague procession. But I mm -hmm. still have to remind them, everyone go watch it. But this will tell you more about post-World War II nihilism mm -hmm. than about the Middle Ages. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we've got yeah. to understand. And I, I think all of the authors uh, in our collection here. Yeah, try to immerse themselves in what what was the modern setting mm -hmm. that produced these cultural artifacts that, that they're looking at. Mm -hmm. Definitely. There are a lot of air quotes <laughs> implied, <laughs> you know, the, the imagined medieval, right? Uh -huh. Misconceptions, you know, those things tend yeah. to have air quotes around. Yeah. So what is it that inspired you to take on this project? Uh, why why write about, why turn from writing about the Middle Ages to writing about uh, something that's more focused on medievalism and on medieval medicine in particular? So um, medievalism. <laughs> the, the very true ultimate or origin story of this collection is that I binge read a lot of medieval mystery novels while writing up my dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> And I did enough of this that I started taking notes and noticing patterns. And at that point, I said, oh, no, this is becoming an academic project instead of my um, irresponsible escapism. Uh, so I am and have been for a very long time interested in both medieval medicine and medievalism. And mm -hmm. when I looked to say, OK, what have people written about the medievalisms, those isms that Winston was talking about, about medicine, I was really surprised to find very little um, that there wasn't really work being done on medievalism about medieval medicine, which is mm -hmm. hard to say five times fast. So hence medical medievalism as, as our coinage. But yeah, especially since teaching a course on the Middle Ages at the movies, I've been really interested mm -hmm. in how we represent and 
imagine the medieval or don't. Um, Winston has a slightly different origin story in relation to the project. Yeah. Um, in some ways, my story goes back many, many, many years long before I ever imagined I would be a medievalist. My mother was a fantasy author and worked oh. at Dragons. And so I grew wow. up surrounded by fictional knights and castles and mm-hmm. bad medievalism. <laughs> um, and in some ways, as I knew that I was going to do this as a career, for a long, long time, I didn't want to do medievalism. I just didn't even want to deal mm-hmm. with that part of myself <laughs> to think about what aspects of the Middle Ages shaped Dungeons and Dragons and fantasy and so on. But I, I, you can't escape your past. <laughs> and uh, just a few years ago, <laughs> I, uh, one of my books, uh, a popular book uh, that I wrote was called The Middle Ages Facts and Fictions. Um, intended for the classroom, intended for beginners in the topic. And in writing that book, I really uh, tried to engage deeply with the the roots, 18th, 19th, 20th century roots of a lot of our pop culture medievalism. And I found in writing that there was so much more I wanted to say especially about my own specialty of medicine, that it was, yeah, I I couldn't say no when uh, uh, Lucy approached me with uh, this idea she had uh, for a medical medievalism volume. Excellent. So uh, I want to have spent a little time talking about both the medieval medicine side and the medical medievalism side. So on the medieval medicine side, since, of course, uh, the the listeners of this podcast vary from other fellow professional medievalists to people who just, uh, you know, like hearing people talk about popular culture. Uh, So given that, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about uh, what you think the kind of main takeaways should be about medieval medicine, right? So if they're, what might they find especially interesting or surprising and uh, are there like a top three things that you wish the average person knew about medieval medicine that you think they probably don't know? What's your kind of like short, short pitch for uh, what's, what's most interesting about uh, medieval medicine? Ooh, that's a big one. It is. I'm trying <laughs> to sort through my top three. Uh, well, I'll give this a go uh, first here um, where I, I would want modern novices to the field to really understand that medieval medicine is about balance. It's about restoring the person you should be or the person you once were. And in that respect, it may look very modern (laughs) rather than uh, so much of medieval medicine doesn't take the form of the the gore and the leeches and the the mm-hmm. blood and the amputation that gets shown and that people I think want to see from medieval mm-hmm. settings that um, a lot of medieval medicine will take the form primarily of simple herbalism that is meant to soothe you and as I said, yeah, restore uh, the balance of who you were. Absolutely. So 
two for two of us are going to mention blood and bloodletting. Um, uh, Bloodletting was not indiscriminate. I think possibly because Mm. of famous or infamous examples from like 18th century American history. My students come in with the idea that all people in the past used bloodletting for everything all the time. Like it was the go-to remedy. And this was simply not the case. Any set of prescriptions Mm -hmm. for bloodletting is very detailed about when and how and why Mm -hmm. Um, letting blood could be among your range of options for that restoring of balance. Because I study medieval hospitals, (laughs) I also deal with misconceptions about medieval hospitals. So they were free to enter. My mostly American students are shocked to know this. And they are designed as holistic spaces of care. They're not, you know, terrifying, unhygienic uh, sites of confinement or death or whatever else, right? The imagination conjures um, when the concept of a hospital gets mashed up with whatever that imagined medieval Mm -hmm. uh, looks like. I've been trying to figure out a pithy way of uh, getting at my third point, which is that categorizing something using non-modern terminology does not mean that a different culture or time period has just failed to understand or address an issue. Um, Mm -hmm. I've recently been reading the medieval disability source book with my Mm -hmm. students. And after a couple of weeks, one student bravely asked, wait, so they didn't understand mental illness at all? And looking at the miracle stories we'd been reading and legal documents about helping people who were possessed by demons, right, etc. I said, what do you think these symptoms and experiences look like? What do you think that is? How would you categorize that? And what kind of interventions would you recommend? And it was this light bulb moment, which for one thing, taught me something about how I should teach this text differently, right? Where the student who somehow put you know, these therapies, interventions, descriptors, and how we would think about, you know, everything from depression to mania uh, in totally separate boxes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that is, that is fascinating. That's, it's all, that uh, source book is also such a great resource for students. Why did you choose this particular uh, title, Beyond Cadfael? Is uh, so. First of all, uh, why don't you, just in case we have covered Cadfael on this podcast, as you know, but uh, just in case uh, anyone didn't listen to that episode and has somehow missed the uh, book and TV series, uh, who is who is Cadfael, and uh, do you think that indeed that's the first thing that people think of when they think about medieval medicine? So Catfail is a delight and a joy. Um, I don't know. <laughs> it. Um, uh, he is a Benedictine retired crusader who lives in Shrewsbury on the borders of England and Wales during the English interregnum of the mid 20th century. And like Sherlock Holmes, I tend to talk about him like a real person. <laughs> um, <laughs> Winston, do you want to get at other essential things about Catfail? <laughs> Yeah, um, uh, it was a series of novels in the 70s through 90s. I think she went all the yeah. way to the 90s. And then uh, probably better known uh, from a, was made for PBS? 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, not not BBC. Yeah, um, uh, PBS uh, series where nearly every one of the books by the author Alice Peters, um, uh, the, the pseudonym for Edith Pargeter. I think there's nearly twenty of them. Yeah. Uh, but listeners, yeah, might know, uh, yeah, that the actor who plays Cadfile, uh, Sir Derek Jacobi, uh, yeah, one of my favorites, absolute favorites. <laughs> Listeners might know him most recently. Uh, he plays uh, the voice of God on Good Omens on uh, Prime Prime Video. <laughs> but yeah, uh, it's not that everybody, even among medievalists, would necessarily know Cadfile. But I think both Lucy and I have found, and I found this talking to other medievalists, and especially specialists in medieval medicine, that Cadfile is often the gateway drug, <laughs> the door uh -huh. to medieval medical culture, because he is the herbalist and medic for his monastery. Mm -hmm. And he solves murders using sometimes his medical and botanical knowledge. Uh, so it has a quite relatively positive view of medieval medicine, but also a problematic one for historians mm -hmm. because I mean, this is, uh, Lucy can talk more about her specific essay, but yeah, we have the problems of how do modern tropes of uh, detectives get imposed on Cadfile and mm -hmm. other figures. So yeah, um, he is our, our good uh, entry figure to the book, but as we very first word there, we want to go beyond him. We want to do more than just mm -hmm. unpack what's right or wrong with that series and look at all the different ways you can approach medical medievalism. Winston has made a very cogent and persuasive argument for how this is a totally well-justified title in ways that I would not necessarily <laughs> have presumed uh, to do. But yes, um, not only am I a giant uh, mystery novel nerd as established, but right, Cadfell is this fairly massive, fairly positive and fairly early example yeah. of medievalism. Like I checked uh, and the first Cadfile novel actually predates the name of the rose. Umberto Eco's oh, massive huh. achievement. I know, who knew? Um, yeah. yeah. That's that's very interesting. I don't think I realized that. I think I would have assumed that name of the rose was earlier. So as we kind of turn right into this conversation about medical medievalism specifically, uh, how... What do you find especially striking about some of the ways, both positive and negative, that medieval medicine tends to be represented in popular culture? Are there uh, particularly common tropes? We've already touched on a couple of these, but uh, what what do you find especially striking in terms of uh, you know sort of common examples of medical medievalism? Um, I mean, there are a lot of leeches, just so yeah. many leeches. <laughs> Well, I, I don't know about that. I wanted to, to start with a leech story here. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, our students in pop culture, there's always this assumption about, as you said, Lucy, bloodletting, but also leeches as well. And um, many, many moons ago, when I was a little grad student, uh, just getting into medieval medicine, just by chance, um, uh, a... TV show from Discovery Health Channel uh, was filming in Toronto, where I was, 
and they went to the Center for Medieval Studies, where I was, to see if there was anyone there who could talk about medieval medicine. But this says something about their pop culture preconceptions about what medieval mm -hmm. medicine was. Their main guest for the show was a modern physician who uses maggot therapy. It's disgusting, but apparently quite valid and effective to debride a wound, literally remove the dead flesh. It's disgusting, but they are actually sanitary and quite effective. Well, they thought, oh, if we're going to have a show about maggots, that means medieval. <laughs> so let's get some medievalists on a, to talk about gross, wrong medicine and leeches. <laughs> Um, and so there was a whole, there were layers and layers of assumptions there mm -hmm. from these non-historians, non-medievalists at Discovery Health about, they simply thought they knew what medieval mm -hmm. medicine was. And so there were, I was one of several medievalists on, and the host asks us about, uh, so tell us about leeches. <laughs> and we all had to pretty much stop and look at each other and they had to cut at that point and we all all agreed there are almost no leeches mm -hmm. <laughs> uh like most medieval bloodletting is done with a scalpel um yeah. yeah cut the vein and you empty it into a bowl and yes there are a few leeches but <laughs> we had to explain off camera that the leeches are primarily an early modern even mm -hmm. almost almost modern phenomenon mm -hmm. uh so even though that's not in what we might call pop culture i mm -hmm. think these ideas just about what medieval medicine is yeah. was uh shaping uh, their preconceptions mm -hmm. i always actually find striking that there's uh there seems in a lot of popular culture to be this really interesting dichotomy of uh, there is bad medieval western medicine right where everything that's happening in europe is wrong and there's so much blood and you know if you go to a medieval you know doctor or other medical practitioner you're probably more likely to die than not uh, and on the other hand we have this then comparison with medieval medicine in the islamic world which is presented as like intensely advanced yeah, this actually anticipates something we were going to say later, but indeed, um, it's this really insidious form of Orientalism. Yes. Well, yes. Okay. <laughs> All three of us are like, yes, yes. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, it, it treats, for one thing, right, Western, you know, and implicitly European med medicine and medicine in the Islamic world as totally separate mm -hmm. right ignoring for instance the fact that iberia exists um <laughs> like sorry um uh and right assuming that these um you know internally diverse cultures were not in communication with each other mm -hmm. yeah 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 that was one of the ideas that brought me into the volume where i'd already been toying with an idea that the book, as, as as Lucy was imagining it, uh, w would be a perfect home for it. There's a, there was a novel, and then a movie, and then a miniseries, and now a stage musical of uh, called The Physician. And a bestseller in Europe, barely known in North America. But yeah, it's a, a highly fictionalized um, telling partly of the 
Persian Muslim medieval physician Ibn Sina or Avicenna. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the end, I didn't actually end up writing about this book because I got distracted by other images of Avicenna. But mm -hmm. I find this what's so uh, appealing for, for, for a scholar of medievalism about this book and its uh, descendants is it's one of the worst culprits of this orientalism yes uh, yeah um have you read it or seen i have movie? not read the book but i have seen the movie and that was oh one of the God. things i was yeah. in particular thinking of since it is it the movie makes such a range of bizarre choices yeah and really. the movie they they make the west even worse than mm -hmm. it, in the book but yeah it, it works from the assumption that a practicing physician or an aspiring physician in Anglo-Saxon England is living in a world of darkness and filth and superstition mm -hmm. and oppressed by an evil tyrannical church. And the only way he can gain any real medical knowledge is, well, first he has to pretend to be a Jew and then to move to uh, Isfahan and mm -hmm. study under Avicenna because medical knowledge is impossible from our perspective, a modern perspective, impossible to attain in medieval mm -hmm. Europe. Um, With that, of course, this added bizarre element, right, that the claim is made, at least in the movie, I assume it's something similar in the book, that Jews but not Christians are allowed yeah. <laughs> to exist in Isfahan, which is just this yeah. utterly bizarre as, yeah. as a claim. <laughs> And completely made up. And we know there are plenty of, yeah, Arabic-speaking Christians and Persian-speaking mm -hmm. Christians in that right. part of the world in the period. Yeah, this is just one of many examples. But yeah, the, as Lucy said, the insidious part is the implicit message that the Westerner learns the correct medicine, brings it back to Europe, mm -hmm. makes Europe better, and then Europeans can eventually take over the world. <laughs> we're, right. we're jumping ahead 500,000 mm -hmm. years, but I think that lies behind these stories. And mm -hmm. um, this is often, mm -hmm. uh, we often see this retelling of mm -hmm. uh, this forced dichotomy of the yeah. world. And of course, that as soon as a white English Westerner is introduced to you know, Arabic medicine and to that medical tradition that he suddenly is the best physician other than Ibn Sina. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yes. Yeah, of course. Well, and I think this also ties into something that um, Winston makes very clear in his facts and fictions book, which is that the enlightenment agenda of representing medieval European culture as European modernity's childish other, right? Uh -huh. um, is very much linked to uh, ideologies that mm -hmm. show Europe as performing modernity correctly, attaining modernity mm -hmm. correctly, right? Only Europe has successfully outgrown, transcended, and left behind its benighted, childish past. Um, and I mean, I think this insidious set of ideas it is underlying a lot of common misconceptions about the Middle Ages that are widespread, right? Even if people have never mm -hmm. read Jules Michelet or Edward Gibbon or, you know, those guys from the 18th and 19th centuries. 
the sort of charitable end of this set of assumptions, I think, is that medieval people were doing the best they could with very limited understandings and very limited resources, um, which is patronizing in a number mm -hmm. of ways. Mm -hmm. And the, the flip side, the negative view of that is that medieval people just tended to be sadistic and unhygienic by default. Right. Right. Yeah. And I was going to say also, isn't isn't Cadfael also represented as the reason he is so good at medicine is because he learned all of these things when he uh, from Muslims when he was off crusading? Not exclusively, no. Okay. Um, and I would say, if I'm remembering correctly at this point, that that's more the case in the fill in the TV show. Okay. That's probably where I'm books. getting it from because I've seen I've seen some, but not all of the show, and I've actually never read the book, so. Yeah, so he he has some Eastern poppy seeds specifically because he brought mm -hmm. seeds back with him from, I forget, is it Antioch or Aleppo where he stays long term? Anyway, in Syria. Um, he, he lives in Syria long term, I think. So the botanical diversity of his little 12th century mm -hmm. monastic medical garden reflects that he has traveled and been a crusader, but not so much. Although I will say that that is a very common trope in medieval mystery yeah. novels more broadly. Well, yeah. and beyond mystery novels, as we've been discussing. But yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, this is why the Mistress of the Art of Death series annoys me a lot, even though a lot of people, including other historians, including other medievalists, enjoy it. I just, I can't get past it. Um, clearly, I have a normal amount of feelings about medieval mystery novels. <laughs> I, I had remembered that that same trope, and I'm probably getting it from the series rather than the novels. But yeah, the idea, which I think especially comes from from the Templars, that you you plunk a benighted European down in uh, the Near East, and even if they're in a violent conflict, they'll somehow absorb and improve upon the eastern culture it's a very supersessionist uh, attitude where yeah we'll take what you have <laughs> you did well with it but we're going to improve on it and take it back home and so i mean it's templars often get credited wrongly or excessively not just for medicine but for checking and banking and <laughs> uh spices and uh or not just the templars but the crusades in general uh right it's a way of almost validating the Crusades. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, well, well, we we learn <laughs> in the process. Yeah. I'm so glad we've gotten to some good Templar bashing in here. Yes, <laughs> yes. And like, it's just, it's also like people, people seem to think the Templars are like so much more exciting than they in fact are. Is, uh, I'm like, look, they're bankers. They didn't invent banking, but like, they're bankers. Yeah. A lot of bookkeeping there. Yeah. 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 My poor students are constantly waiting to get to the exciting bits about Templars, even once we've read about Templars. I'm like, these are the sources, kids. I'm not holding out on you. <laughs> yeah, I often find that there's like certain things that they're 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 sure that there's that they're going to eventually learn the thing that they want to learn, right? About like how like secretly like wild the Templars are and how, you know, when like when the witch persecution starts and uh all that. We've already touched on this a little bit, but are there any movies, TV shows, books that you think do an especially good job of representing medieval medicine? Uh, and on the flip side also, uh, are there any that you think are like uniquely, especially poor 
at representing medieval medicine? <laughs> like, what are the the kind of highlights and lowlights of uh, medical medievalism? I mean, this is a bit of a cheat answer for which I apologize, but we kind of wanted to get away from this binary of either things do a good job of representing medieval medicine yeah. or a bad job of representing uh-huh. medieval medicine. Because of course, as you've gone over a lot of times on this show, representing medieval medicine or medieval anything is never the ultimate goal of a pop culture. And one of the things that Claire Burridge's essay, an essay by an archaeologist in this volume discusses, is that perhaps the most characteristic approach to medieval medicine is to make it be an absence. So she writes about how the last kingdom and Vikings, for instance, right? These two massive, massively popular TV shows, even though people are wounded a lot and sick a non-zero amount, there is almost no representation of medical intervention, therapeutic intervention, right? Or medical care, whether that's around Um, you know, a guy getting his eye put out or, you know, people getting wounded in these big battles or even pregnancy and childbirth, you know, or regulation of diet, you know, for your sort of standard medieval king, even though the last kingdom features Alfred, my favorite chronically ill nerd of the Middle Ages. So medieval medicine often just isn't in the pop culture. And I would say also that everything has pros and cons. Like there's a, an adaptation of Ken Follett's World Without End that includes um, <laughs> the you know gruesome, unhygienic uh, amputation uh, of a man's arm by a guy who doesn't know what he's doing. But it also uh, includes the character who then has you know lost his arm below the elbow as taking on a second career as a monk. He can no longer be a warrior, not having one hand, but he adapts happily and well to being a monk, where he also takes a lover, which I quite like um, because of the rarity uh-huh. of seeing... Yeah characters with disabilities allowed to also be adults with sexual desires um, Mm -hmm. in media. Yeah. So, sorry, this is a bit of a tangent, but, right, so that is, I think, really good, even though, you know, uh, there are other things which aren't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, several of our authors in the book all bring up uh, the same example uh, of they will use it as an example of uh, medieval medicine being badly done, but I'm going to be confrontational here and say it's actually the other. And that would be um, Steve Martin's skit uh, from Saturday Night Live, where he plays Theodoric <laughs> of York, medieval barber. And <laughs> I and I, I don't blame them for, I think three, three of the authors all come back to this as a touch cultural touchstone of... Uh, making fun of uh, medieval medicine. But just as we're talking here, and I think about it, it's almost in some ways, it's again, like Monty Python. Through the humor, Mm -hmm. it's actually more accurate. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Because Dan Aykroyd comes in for his seasonal bloodletting. That was done. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And 
they don't use leeches. They use a blade and a bowl that was done. Mm -hmm. uh, someone has a dislocated limb. And while there's much gory and graphic, violent humor, the method they use is straight out of a Hippocratic manual. Mm. <laughs> this is ancient, not medieval. Uh, and there's even sort of a potted history of developments, at least of English medieval medicine, where they say, we used to think this was caused by a troll or a demon in their stomach. We now know it was an imbalance of the humors. And the modern audience laughs at, uh, look, the stupid people believing in humors, but it does in some ways represent mm -hmm. a, a significant and genuine shift yeah. uh, in attitudes to disease causation. And while it's all in late night <laughs> humor uh mm -hmm. it's i think it does a better job <laughs> than many mm -hmm. serious uh yeah. historical series like uh vikings mm -hmm. or yeah, it's the one that comes to mind here but yeah the these yeah. the series where there there is no medicine at all mm -hmm. I, I i think that might be a symptom of when people don't even realize that the influence of uh, fantasy of Dungeons mm -hmm. and Dragons and before that Tolkien was a Robin Reich. Uh, she has an essay partly about that, about the forms of medical knowledge within fantasy mm -hmm. uh, worlds. But very often healing can only be done by a magical cleric. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise you're doomed. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think that gets imposed like, like Claire Burridge and others in the book show, it gets imposed on more historical representations mm -hmm. of the past, like the uh, Viking series. Yeah. I was, I was just rewatching the Lord of the Rings trilogy actually. And there's a lot of like, he needs elvish medicine for this, yeah. uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, but that is also for magically incurred wounds typically. And I, I will say, actually, there are some kind of interesting moments where like uh, at the, especially in, um, in return of the King, when like you have the kind of wounds incurred in battle, you have this kind of like battlefield, like hospice set up, which I'm like, it doesn't seem that bad actually. Yeah. <laughs> So Robin Reich's essay is maybe the first one you want to turn to because yeah. she uh, offers a lovingly detailed analysis of how, for instance, Aragorn's practice of medical care differs from Samwise Gamgee's practice yeah. of medical care. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I, I will definitely take a look at that. Yeah. Not Sam Gamgee, uh, Sam Tarley, right? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, probably. Although Sam yeah. also like might... Sorry, my favorite Sam. Sorry, Sam Tarley. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, also does have yeah. knowledge of herbal medicine, but yes, Winston, it's yeah. the it's the other derivative Sam. Again, yeah. sorry, <laughs> Sam Tarley, but yeah, she she brings together, I think, yeah, very fruitfully the Tolkien uh, mm -hmm. as well as Game of Thrones. Okay, uh, and and yeah, I think uh, I want to hear more from that and yeah, others uh, about. Uh, there's really interesting things we can still explore about uh, grayscale, this leprosy-like mm -hmm. disease. Uh, yeah. Uh, which, is it magical? Isn't it? Uh, yeah. How how can it be cured? And so, yeah, it's not that there isn't medical intervention, but often, yeah, pales in comparison to the magic mm -hmm. of the yes. clerics or sorcerers. Mm-hmm. 
So one of the uh, the usual segments that I have on this podcast when I have my more standard format is uh, the Fabula Nostra, where the guest and host are asked to uh, pitch an idea for another piece of media inspired by this one. Uh, so as a kind of takeoff of that, what ideas might you have for a representation that you'd like to see in the world of medieval medicine and popular media. And so this can be if uh, you would like to see a kind of film or TV adaptation of, uh, you know, a book series that already exists. Is there, you know, some other kind of story that you wish would be told? Uh, what what kinds of representations of medieval medicine do you do you wish for better uh, existed in the world? So I have a couple. Um, I have narrowed down my internal list, but I have a couple. Our first essay in this volume uh, opens with a house joke um, about lupus, and mm-hmm. what, yeah, exactly. Um, and when it's things never are, lupus. are not lupus, exactly. <laughs> um, but as I think uh, Margaret Ng's uh, excellent essay in the volume makes clear, I think like a uh, Doctor House style. Uh, TV show, but following a medical practitioner in middle period China, like in Song Dynasty China. I think. Oh that wow! Would work. I would 100% yeah. watch that. Um, so it would have crossovers with uh, Judge D as well. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, a good mystery series. Um, also. Michael Sheen-led Cadfile remake, which I will keep saying until the universe hears me. I want this to exist so badly, Sarah. You have no idea. Winston knows because I have told him with boring (laughs) frequency. I love Michael Sheen too, but never as much as Lucy does. So (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's true. Also, further um, exposing myself as a PBS mystery addict, I think that we deserve a TV adaptation of the Isaac of Hirona series, which mm. follows a Jewish doctor who is besties with the bishop, they're chess buddies, and he keeps scolding the bishop for not taking his dietary recommendations. And Isaac also becomes blind over the course of the first novel so we get Mm. to see him as a respected and expert Mm -hmm. physician who also has a disability so we get to see disability accommodations there's plague because of course there's plague um and um there's always plague and a lot of interesting mystery plots where you know isaac fights crime in 14th century iberia Mm. So that, that's my top three. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really only have one. Uh, probably a long list I could come up with, but one that I definitely uh, am uh, obsessing over is um, it would be a video game, uh, loosely related possibly to CAD file, um, mm-hmm. but built around a medical practitioner, probably monastic, because mm-hmm. that makes sense. And th- this came out of um, sort of a, a dr- dream side job I had uh, last year. I was a historical consultant on a video game called Pentiment that came out for oh, that. Yeah. And I've heard really great things about that. Yeah, it's uh, award winning and um, showing how people are actually hungry for highly narrative 
uh, mm. intellectual, emotional games. There, there is some violence, but it is not. It, you just—it's uh, almost a pick a path adventure. You, you talk to people, you learn, and there's many different endings. Anyway, in Pentiment, a small part of the story it does take place in a monastic infirmary. It's medieval, essentially, even though the story's early 16th century. It's medieval because I was the consultant, <laughs> but I there's only just a tiny bit of me and my interest there, and I I would lo love to see a whole lot more. And I think there would I think there'd be popularity uh, for that that uh, people would like a narrative mystery video game in a similar medieval medical world. Yeah, uh, my thought is that. Um... I only came up with one one idea uh, as well. Um, so this already has been part accomplished, right? By uh, you know Lucy's suggestion of his Isaac of Girona adaptation. But as uh, as I often mention on this podcast, one of my kind of constant frustrations uh, in in terms of also ways in which like this podcast for fun is also turning into an academic endeavor. Uh, that I have this article that I'm working on on the uh, the absence of Jews in uh, most uh, popular media, especially when you're talking about movies and TV shows, right, uh, set in the Middle Ages. So Isaac of Girona would be would be a great uh, option for that, those Isaac of Girona novels. But the other thing that I was thinking about is that there's this, uh, this article by Monica Green and Daniel Lordsvale that I've taught a number of times about uh, Floretta Dyes, a uh, Jewish midwife who was accused of medical malpractice in uh, Marseille in the 15th century. And I think that would actually make a fantastic movie, which would be a sort of like medical slash legal drama. I would watch that. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've taught that uh, article as well. And yeah, it's, it's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I usually end up actually teaching it in, uh, in either kind of gender or law focused classes, as opposed to, uh, to kind of medicine classes per se. But I think it is uh, as a story that, I mean, part of what's interesting about it, right, is that it intersects with all of those kind of different things. And I think would be would be a great movie. Definitely. So thank you so much for uh, coming on and taking the time to chat about the book. Where can the listeners find you on the internet? And uh, relatedly, uh, where can they find and uh, purchase the book? Um, well, I am uh, holding out on Twitter at Singing Scholar and also on Mastodon, Lucy Barnhouse. Um, thanks to Winston, I'm trying to get used to Blue Sky as well. Similarly, um, the book is hopefully available through all good booksellers and definitely through the website of Trivent Press, in whose medievalism series it is published. Wonderful. Yeah, it's available as a physical or uh, ebook, um, uh, as everything is these days. Um, uh, listeners can find me, uh, no longer active, but still there on, uh, Twitter X. Uh, I've got 10 years of tweets there, which I am loath to delete, but, uh, but that's at Winston E black. So I've got my middle initial there, but I'm more active on blue sky is simply Winston black. All right. Fantastic. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review on your app of choice. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast. At the moment, uh, it is still only on Twitter slash X at Media Evil Pod because it is uh, on my to-do list to expand our social media 
selections, but that takes time that I have not found that I've had this past semester. But we do also have a Facebook group. um, So please search for that as well. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah F. Stecker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd also love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So Lucy and Winston, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. In the Middle Ages, medicine was still in its infancy. The art of healing was conducted not by physicians, but by barbers. The medieval barbers were the forerunners of today's men of medicine, and many of the techniques they developed are still practiced today.